Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book 11, Chapter 2. La Creatura Bella Bianco Vestita. The Beautiful Creature Clad in White. When Quasimodo saw that the cell was empty, the gypsy gone, that while he was defending her she had been carried off, he tore his hair and stamped with rage and surprise. Then he ran from end to end of the church in search of his sovereign lady, uttering strange howls as he went, scattering his red hair upon the pavement. It was just at the moment when the royal archers entered Notre Dame in triumph, also in search of the gypsy. Quasimodo helped them, without suspecting, poor, deaf fellow, their fatal purpose. He supposed that the enemies of the gypsy were the vagrants. He himself guided Tristan Lermite to every possible hiding place, opened secret doors, false altar backs, and inner sacristies for him. Had the wretched girl still been there, it would have been Quasimodo himself who betrayed her. When the fatigue of unsuccessful search discouraged Tristan, who was not easily discouraged, Quasimodo continued to search alone. Twenty, nay, a hundred times, he went the round of the church, from one end to the other, from top to bottom, upstairs, downstairs, running, calling, crying, sniffing, ferreting, rummaging, poking his head into every hole, thrusting a torch into every vault, desperate, mad. No wild beast which had lost its mate could be wilder or more frantic. Finally, when he was sure, very sure, that she was no longer there, that all was over, that she had been stolen from him, he slowly climbed the tower stairs, those stairs which he had mounted with such eagerness and delight on the day when he saved her. He passed by the same places, with hanging head, voiceless, tearless, almost breathless. The church was again deserted, and had relapsed into its usual silence. The archers had left it to track the witch into the city. Quasimodo, alone in that vast cathedral, so crowded and so noisy but a moment previous, returned to the room where the gypsy had for so many weeks slept under his watchful care. As he approached it, he fancied that he might perhaps find her there. When, at the turn of the gallery opening upon the roof of the side aisle, he caught sight of the narrow cell, with its tiny door and window nestling under a huge flying buttress, like a bird's nest under a branch, his heart failed him. Poor man! and he leaned against a pillar, lest he should fall. He imagined that she might perhaps have returned, that a good genius had undoubtedly brought her back, that the cell was too quiet, too safe, and too attractive for her not to be there, and he dared not take another step for fear of destroying his illusion. Yes, he said to himself, she is asleep, or saying her prayers. I won't disturb her. At last he summoned up all his courage, advanced on tiptoe, looked, entered. Empty. The cell was still empty. The unhappy deaf man slowly walked about it, 
lifted the bed and looked under it, as if she might be hidden between the mattress and the stones. Then he shook his head and stood staring stupidly. All at once he trampled his torch furiously underfoot, and without a word, without a sigh, he threw himself headlong against the wall and fell fainting on the floor. When he came to his senses, he flung himself upon the bed. He rolled upon it. He kissed frantically the place, still warm, where the young girl had slept. He lay there for some moments as motionless as if about to die. Then he rose, streaming with perspiration, panting, insensate, and began to beat his head against the wall with the frightful regularity of the clapper of one of his own bells, and the resolution of a man who is determined to dash out his brains. At last he fell exhausted for the second time. He dragged himself from the cell on his knees, and crouched before the door in an attitude of wonder. Thus he remained for more than an hour without stirring, his eye fixed upon the empty cell, sadder and more pensive than a mother seated between an empty cradle and a coffin. He did not utter a word. Only at long intervals a sob shook his whole body convulsively, but it was a dry, tearless sob, like summer lightning, which is silent. It seems that it was then that seeking in his desolate thoughts to learn who could have been the unlooked-for ravisher of the gypsy, his mind reverted to the archdeacon. He remembered that Dom Claude alone had a key to the staircase leading to the cell. He recalled his midnight attempts upon the girl, first in which he, Quasimodo, had helped him, the second which he had foiled. He remembered a thousand details, and soon ceased to doubt that the archdeacon had stolen the gypsy from him. However, such was his respect for the priest, his gratitude, his devotion, his love for the man were so deeply rooted in his heart that they resisted, even at this moment, the claws of jealousy and despair. He considered that the archdeacon had done this thing, and the thirst for blood and murder which he would have felt for another were turned in the poor deaf man to added grief where Claude Frollo was concerned. Just as his thoughts were thus concentrated upon the priest, as dawn whitened the flying buttresses, he saw on the upper story of Notre Dame, at the angle formed by the outer railing which runs round the chancel, a moving figure. The figure was walking towards him. He recognized it. It was the archdeacon. Claude advanced with grave, slow pace. He did not look before him as he walked. He was going towards the north tower, but his face was turned aside towards the right bank of the Seine, and he held his head erect, as if trying to see something over the roofs. The owl often carries its head in this crooked position— it flies towards one point and looks in another. The priest thus passed above Quasimodo without seeing him. The deaf man, petrified by this sudden apparition, saw him disappear through the door of the staircase in the north tower. 
the reader knows that this tower is the one from which the Hotel de Ville is visible. Quasimodo rose and followed the archdeacon. Quasimodo climbed the tower stairs, intending to go to the top to learn why the priest was there. Yet the poor ringer knew not what he, Quasimodo, meant to do or say, or what he wished. He was full of fury and full of fear. The archdeacon and the gypsy struggled for the mastery in his heart. When he reached the top of the tower, before issuing from the shadow of the stairs and stepping upon the platform, he looked carefully about to see where the priest was. The priest stood with his back to him. There is an open balustrade around the platform of the belfry tower. The priest, whose eyes were riveted upon the city, leaned against that one of the four sides of the railing which overlooks the Pont Notre-Dame. Quasimodo, stealthily advancing behind him, gazed abroad to see what he was watching so closely. But the priest's attention was so fully absorbed that he did not hear the deaf man's step at his side. Paris is a magnificent and charming sight, and especially so was the Paris of that day, viewed from the top of the towers of Notre-Dame in the cool light of a summer dawn. The day might have been one of the early days of July. The sky was perfectly clear. A few tardy stars were fading out at different points, and there was a single very brilliant one in the east, in the brightest part of the sky. The sun was just rising. Paris began to stir. A very white, very pure light threw into strong relief all the outlines which its countless houses present to the east. The monstrous shadows of the steeples spread from roof to roof, from one end of the great city to the other. There were already certain quarters filled with chatter and noise, here the stroke of a bell, there the blow of a hammer, yonder the intricate jingle and clatter of a passing cart. Already smoke rose here and there from the sea of roofs, as from the fissures in a vast volcano. The river, whose waters washed the piers of so many bridges and the shores of so many islands, was rippled with silvery folds. Around the city, outside the ramparts, the view was lost in a wide ring of fleecy vapors, through which the indefinite line of the plains and the graceful swell of the hills were vaguely visible. All sorts of sounds floated confusedly over the half-awakened city. Towards the east, the morning breeze chased across the sky a few white flakes torn from the fleece of mist upon the hills. In the cathedral square certain good women, milk jug in hand, pointed with amaze to the strange dilapidation of the great door of Notre-Dame, and the two rivulets of lead congealed in the crevices of the sandstone. These were the only remaining signs of the tumult of the night. The bonfire kindled by Quasimodo between the towers had gone out. Tristan had already had the square cleared and the dead bodies thrown into the Seine. Kings like Louis XI are careful to wash the pavement quickly after a massacre. 
Outside the tower rail, exactly under the point where the priest had paused, there was one of those fancifully carved gutters with which Gothic edifices bristle. And in a chink of this gutter were two pretty gilly-flowers in full bloom, waving and seeming almost alive in the breeze as they playfully saluted each other. Above the towers, aloft, far away in the depths of the sky, were little twittering birds. But the priest heard and saw none of these things. He was one of those men for whom there are no daydreams or birds or flowers. In all that immense horizon, which assumed so many and such varied aspects about him, his gaze was centered on a single point. Quasimodo burned to ask him what he had done with the gypsy, but the archdeacon seemed at this instant to have left the world far behind him. He was evidently passing through one of those critical moments of life when a man would not feel the earth crumble beneath him. His eyes fixed constantly upon a certain spot, he stood motionless and silent. And there was something so fearful about his silence and his motionlessness that the shy bell-ringer shuddered before it and dared not disturb him. Only, and this was one way of questioning the archdeacon, he followed the direction of his glance, and in this manner the eye of the unfortunate deaf man fell upon the Place de Greve. Thus he saw what the priest was watching. The latter was reared beside the permanent gallows. There were a few people in the square and a number of soldiers. A man dragged across the pavement a white object to which something black was fastened. This man stopped at the foot of the gallows. At this point, something took place which Quasimodo could not quite make out not because his one eye had not retained its great range, but there was a knot of soldiers which hindered him from seeing everything. Besides, at this instant the sun rose, and such a flood of light burst from the horizon that it seemed as if every pinnacle in Paris, spires, chimneys, and gables, were set on fire at once. Meantime, the man continued to climb the ladder. Then Quasimodo saw him again distinctly. He had a woman across his shoulder, a young girl dressed in white. This girl had a knotted rope around her neck. Quasimodo recognized her. It was she. The man reached the top of the ladder. There he arranged the noose, here the priest, to see the better, knelt upon the balustrade. All at once the man pushed the ladder quickly from him with his heel, and Quasimodo, who had scarcely breathed for some moments past, saw the unfortunate girl dangling from the end of the rope, a dozen feet from the ground, the man crouching above her, pressing his feet against her shoulders to weigh her down. The rope revolved rapidly several times, and Quasimodo saw a horrible shudder 
run through the gypsy's frame. The priest, on his part, with outstretched neck and starting eyes, watched that dreadful group of man and girl, of the spider and the fly. At the most awful moment, a demoniac laugh, a laugh impossible to a mere man, broke from the livid lips of the priest. Quasimodo did not hear this laughter, but he saw it. The ringer shrank back a few paces behind the archdeacon, and then, suddenly rushing furiously upon him, with his huge hands, he hurled Dom Claude into the abyss over which he leaned. The priest cried, Damnation! and fell. The gutter below arrested his fall. He clung to it with desperate hands, and, as he opened his mouth for a second shriek, he saw, looking over the edge of the balustrade, above his head, the terrible, avenging face of Quasimodo. Then he was silent. The abyss was beneath him, a fall of more than two hundred feet, and the pavement. In this dreadful situation, the archdeacon said not a word, uttered not a groan. He merely writhed about the gutter, making incredible efforts to climb up it, but his hands had no grip upon the granite. His feet scratched the blackened wall without finding a foothold. Those who have visited the towers of Notre Dame know that the stone projects directly below the balustrade. It was against this swell that the wretched archdeacon exhausted himself in frantic struggles. He was working, not upon a perpendicular wall, but upon a wall which sloped away from beneath him. Quasimodo had only to stretch forth his hand to save him from the gulf. But he did not even look at him. He looked at the Place de Greve. He looked at the gibbet. He looked at the gypsy girl. The deaf man leaned his elbows on the railing, in the very place where the archdeacon had been the moment previous, and there, never removing his gaze from the only object which at this instant existed for him, he stood motionless and mute, as if struck by lightning, and a river of tears flowed silently from that eye which until then had shed but a single tear. Meantime, the archdeacon gasped. His bald head streamed with perspiration. His nails bled against the stone. His knees were flayed against the wall. He heard his cassock, by which he hung to the spout, crack and rip at every jerk that he gave it. To complete his misfortunes, this spout terminated in a leaden pipe which was bending beneath the weight of his body. The archdeacon felt this pipe slowly giving way. The miserable creature said to himself that when his cassock was torn through, when the lead bent completely, he must fall, and terror took possession of him. 
Sometimes he gazed wildly at a sort of narrow platform some ten feet below him, formed by certain carvings which jutted out. And he implored heaven, from the depths of his distressed soul, to permit him to end his life upon that space two feet square, were it to last a hundred years. Once he looked down into the abyss, into the square. When he raised his head, his eyes were shut, and his hair was erect. There was something frightful in the silence of the two men. While the archdeacon, a few feet beneath him, was agonizing in this horrible fashion, Quasimodo wept and watched the Place de Greve. The archdeacon, seeing that all his struggles merely weakened the frail support which remained to him, resolved to move no more. He clung there, hugging the gutter, scarcely breathing, never stirring, his only movement being that mechanical heaving of the chest experienced in dreams when we think that we are falling. His eyes were fixed in a wide stare of anguish and amaze. Little by little, however, he lost ground. His fingers slipped from the spout. The feebleness of his arms and the weight of his body increased more and more. The bending lead which supported him every moment inclined a notch nearer to the abyss. He saw below him a fearful sight, the roof of saint jean le Ronde, as small as a card bent double. He gazed, one after another, at the impassive sculptures on the tower, like him suspended over the precipice, but without terror for themselves or pity for him. All around him was of stone, before his eyes, gaping monsters. Below, far down in the square, the pavement. Above his head, Quasimodo, weeping. Groups of curious citizens had gathered in the square, calmly trying to guess what manner of madman it might be who amused himself in so strange a manner. The priest heard them say, for their voices reached him clear and shrill. But he will break his neck. Quasimodo was weeping. At last the archdeacon, foaming with rage and fright, knew that all was in vain. However, he summoned up his remaining strength for a final effort. He braced himself against the gutter, set his knees against the wall, hooked his hands into a chink in the stones, and succeeded in climbing up perhaps a foot. But this struggle made the leaden pipe upon which he hung bend suddenly. With the same effort, his cassock tore apart. Then, feeling that everything had failed him, his stiffened and trembling hands alone retaining a hold upon anything, the unfortunate wretch closed his eyes and loosened his grasp of the gutter. He fell. Quasimodo watched him fall. A fall from such a height is seldom perpendicular. The archdeacon, launched into space, at first fell head downward with outstretched arms. Then he rolled over and over several times. The wind wafted him to the roof of a house, 
where the unhappy man broke some of his bones. Still, he was not dead when he landed there. The ringer saw him make another effort to clutch the gable with his nails, but the slope was too steep, and his strength was exhausted. He slid rapidly down the roof like a loose tile and rebounded to the pavement. There he ceased to move. Quasimodo then raised his eye to the gypsy, whose body he could see as it swung from the gibbet, quivering beneath its white gown in the last death throes. Then he again lowered it to the archdeacon, stretched at the foot of the tower, without a trace of human shape. And he said, with a sob which heaved his mighty breast, Oh, all that I ever loved. Chapter 3. Marriage of Phoebus Towards evening of the same day, when the bishop's officers came to remove the mangled body of the archdeacon from the pavement, Quasimodo had vanished from Notre Dame. Many rumors were rife concerning the accident. No one doubted that the day had come when, according to their compact, Quasimodo, that is to say, the devil, was to carry off Claude Frollo, that is to say, the sorcerer. It was supposed that he had destroyed the body in taking the soul, as a monkey cracks the shell to eat the nut. Accordingly, the archdeacon was not buried in consecrated ground. Louis XI died the following year, in the month of August, 1483. As for Pierre Gringoire, he succeeded in saving the goat, and he achieved some success as a tragic author. It seems that after dipping into astrology, philosophy, architecture, hermetics, and all manner of follies, he returned to writing tragedies, the most foolish of all things. This he called making a tragic end. In regard to his dramatic triumphs, we read in 1483 in the royal privy accounts. To Jean Marchand and Pierre Gringoire, carpenter and composer, who made and composed the mystery performed at the Châtelet in Paris on the entry of the legate, ordered the personages, dressed and habited the same as the said mystery required, and likewise made the necessary scaffoldings for the same. One hundred pounds. Phoebus de Chateaupers also came to a tragic end. He married. Chapter 4. Marriage of Quasimodo We have already said that Quasimodo disappeared from Notre Dame on the day of the death of the gypsy and the archdeacon. Indeed, he was never seen again. No one knew what became of him. During the night following the execution of Esmeralda, the hangman's assistants took down her body from the gibbet and carried it, as was customary, to the vaults of Montfaucon. Montfaucon, as Sauval states, was the most ancient and most superb gibbet in the kingdom. Between the suburbs of the temple and Saint-Martin, about 320 yards from the walls of Paris, 
a few crossbow shots from the village of La Cortille, at the top of a gentle, almost imperceptibly sloping hill, yet high enough to be seen for a distance of several leagues, was a building of singular shape, looking much like a Celtic cromlech, and where human sacrifices were also offered up. Imagine, at the top of a chalk hill, a parallelopipedon of masonry, fifteen feet high, thirty broad, and forty long, with a door, an outer railing, and a platform. Upon this platform, sixteen huge pillars of unhewn stone, thirty feet high, ranged in a colonnade around three of the four sides of the base which supported them, connected at the top by stout beams from which at intervals hung chains. From all these chains swung skeletons. Round about it, in the plain, were a stone cross and two gibbets of secondary rank, which seemed to spring up like shoots from the central tree. Above all this, in the sky, a perpetual flight of ravens. Such was Montfaucon. At the close of the fifteenth century, the awful gibbet, which dated from 1328, was already very much decayed. The beams were worm-eaten, the chains rusty, the pillars green with mold. The courses of hewn stone gaped widely at the joints, and grass grew upon the platform where no foot ever trod. The structure cast a horrid shadow against the sky, particularly at night, when the moon shone feebly upon those white skulls, or when the breeze stirred chains and skeletons, and made them rattle in the darkness. The presence of this gibbet was enough to give the entire neighborhood an evil name. The stone base of the odious structure was hollow. It had been made into a vast vault, closed by an antique grating of battered iron, into which were cast not only the human remains taken from the chains at Montfaucon, but the bodies of all the unfortunates executed upon the other permanent gallows throughout Paris. In this deep charnel house, where so many mortal remains and so many crimes rotted together, many of the great ones of the earth, many innocent beings, have laid their bones. From Enguerrand de Marigny, who was the first victim of Montfaucon, and who was an upright man, down to Admiral de Coligny, who was the last, and who was likewise a good man. As for the mysterious disappearance of Quasimodo, all that we have been able to discover is this. Some two years or eighteen months after the events which close this story, when search was made in the vault at Montfaucon for the body of Olivier Le Dame, who had been hanged two days previous, and to whom Charles the Eighth had accorded permission to be buried at Saint Laurent in better company, among all those hideous carcasses, two skeletons were found, locked in a close embrace. One of the two, which was that of a woman, still had about it some fragments of a gown, of stuff once white, and about its neck was a necklace made of beads of red seeds, with a little silk bag adorned with green glass beads, which was open 
and empty. These articles were doubtless of so little value that the hangman had not cared to remove them. The other skeleton, which held this in so close an embrace, was that of a man. It was noticed that his spine was curved, his head close between his shoulder blades, and one leg shorter than the other. Moreover, his neck was not broken, and it was evident that he had not been hanged. The man to whom these bones belonged must therefore have come hither himself and died here. When an attempt was made to loose him from the skeleton which he clasped, he crumbled into dust. <laughs>